Hello and welcome back to the Ear Fuel Podcast. As always, I'm Joel Freemark, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at @getearfuel and at the Daily Guru. The podcast is always available in the iTunes and Google Play stores under Ear Fuel and at getearfuel.com. This week, we're going to discuss big time record sales and what it means to us as consumers and fans. But before that, a quick album review. The album I feel almost obligated to discuss today is the new release from Jay-Z, and it's called 444. One of the more frustrating and misleading problems in the digital age is that the second any big artist releases a new album, it's almost instantly hailed as the greatest thing in the history of the world. I'm not saying that great music and albums aren't being created anymore, but can we give a record at least a week of public release before the collective music critics of the world try and marry it? Thank you. Also, let's get this out of the way. Yes, Jay-Z addresses Beyonce's Lemonade album on this album and basically admits that he had at least one affair. I know the internet loves that sort of drama, but the real question is the quality of the music and the lyrics, not the TMZ headlines, okay? Let's move on. It had been rumored for a few months that Jay-Z had something in the works, but the moment he announced the release date, it understandably became the most anticipated album of 2017. Now, a number of people, myself included, felt that his last record to be called the greatest ever, 2013's Magna Carta Holy Grail, wasn't all that great. Even four years since its release, I still don't think the record holds up to his pre-2002 work, and as much as I tried to love the new album, the quality just isn't there. When you look at Jay-Z's finest work, which for me is 2001's Blueprint, there's a cohesion between the music, lyrics, and mood that's flawless. While 444 has its moments, and even a few in succession, the majority of the album is a muddled mess. Really, the first three songs on the album, Kill Jay-Z, The Story of OJ, and Smile, they're almost forced in some ways. They were built to be hype machines all in different ways, but at the end of the day, that balance is nowhere to be seen. There are moments when the background music is so forward and loud in the mix that Jay's lyrics are somewhere between muddled and completely lost. And there are other tracks where, I'm sorry, the beats are just weak. Speaking of beats... There is the idea of cleverly rapping off-beat, and then there's rhymes that just don't match. See the title track of this album for a perfect example. In fact, for all the drama surrounding that song, 444, it's actually one of the most amateurish tracks I've ever heard a professional musician make. All around, the production, the lyrics, everything. It's just plain bad. But there is good on this record, and it's basically the second side plus the Frank Ocean collaboration caught their eyes. The song Family Feud is a good lead-in to the good part of the album, as it's not the best, but it does manage to wash away the taste of the first five songs out of your ears. I dig the way that Jay spins his message on this song, basically giving nods to black-owned businesses, and he's almost giving an economics lecture at one point. Following that is the trio of Bam, Moonlight, and Marcy Me, which, to be honest, is all you really need to listen to on this album. The beats are all great, and his flows are a reminder of why Jay-Z is rightfully considered one of the best MCs in history. Bam has such a killer knock to it, and the way his voice sounds, it's, it's akin to those life and times of Sean Carter days. It just feels good. Now, Moonlight, I mean... 
damn. When it comes to settling all your beefs in one song, Jay-Z shows you how it's done. He takes shots at Drake, maybe Kanye, and even in the opening, it's a not-so-subtle diss on pretty much the majority of current rappers. I also like that he makes an updated version of his line, Sensitive Thugs, Y'all Need Hugs, that line from The Blueprint. Love that. He basically starts talking on this album about rappers trying to look cool and badass by posting intimidating photos on Instagram. Then on Marcy Me, I mean, his opening verse is, as they say, pure fire and, oh yeah, he quotes a few lines of Shakespeare and it fits perfectly. You gotta hear that one. Overall, though, 444 gives me a lot of problems in terms of how to talk about it. When it's good, it's exceptional, but when it's bad, it's garbage. Along with that, it's basically a 50-50 split in terms of how many songs have anything resembling quality. I do strongly urge folks to check out the second half of the album. In fact, maybe start with track six, because if you listen to the album in its current order, you might not make it to track three. Moving on. Back at the end of June, Jay-Z released his new album exclusively available on his Tidal Music service. Now, ignoring the fact that in 2017, things stay exclusive for about 30 seconds, in less than one week, he was somehow awarded a platinum certification by the RIAA, which recognized one million copies of that album sold. Over the last decade, the number of albums reaching platinum status has plummeted into the single digits some years, mostly due to the fact that people don't buy full records anymore. It definitely remains a singles or just a few songs music market. So with that in mind, what Jay-Z managed to achieve in just a few days was nothing short of astonishing. Or was it? See, there's a catch to Jay-Z's one million albums sold because technically... It didn't happen. Sprint paid a boatload of money to sort of buy the album in bulk, and then they offered it to all of their customers for free. So whether one person on Sprint downloaded the album for free or five million people did it, the RIAA still counted it as if every copy Sprint paid for in bulk was sold as a single unit. And just a reminder that the RIAA is the Recording Industry Artists of America, They're basically an industry trade group that represent all the labels, a lot of artists, they're behind the Grammys, and they still have a lot of influence for some weird reason. We'll get into that in a minute. Anyway, this whole Sprint buying in bulk thing is very similar to what happened when Jay-Z released his 2013 album, Magna Carta Holy Grail. His deal with Samsung was almost the same, and there's this wonderfully ironic photo of Jay holding his Platinum Certification Award three days before the album was actually released. Add to that the fact that the RIAA changed their policy so that for every 10 songs sold, it counts as a full album sale, and yeah, that does mean you can sell the same song 10 times and it's technically an album being sold, because that makes sense, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I am not trying to say that Jay-Z wasn't going to sell a million copies eventually. It's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. But the way he hit that number so quickly, along with tactics used by other artists to boast big numbers, it really starts to bring into question whether or not record certification really means anything anymore. So today we are going to discuss some somewhat shady workarounds by folks like Prince and Taylor Swift and Lord and many others in the quest to get a platinum record. 
But before that, let's take a look at how this all began. RIAA certifications were first awarded back in 1958, and the original requirements were pretty steep compared to what modern artists received the same award for. At the onset, an artist would be awarded a gold single when they sold 1 million units, and a gold album simply meant that the record had reached $1 million in total sales. In case you're wondering, the first single to reach gold status was... Any guesses? Anyone? Do we have it? Are we there yet? Bueller? Bueller? That's right. It was Perry Como's Catch a Falling Star in March of 1958. And four months later, the first gold album was awarded to the soundtrack of the musical Oklahoma. This standard for certification remained until 1975 when gold albums were then also required to have half a million units sold along with that million dollars in sales. By this point, record sales in general are miles from where they were in the late 50s as the entire musical landscape went through a massive transformation during those years. So as overall sales grew, the RIAA introduced a new award level, Platinum. This occurred in 1976, and the standard was 1 million albums or 2 million singles sold. The first platinum single was Johnny Taylor's Disco Lady, and the first platinum album, oh yeah, Iron Butterflies in Agata De Vida. No joke, it was the 70s. A lot of people were smoking pot. Multi-platinum awards began in 1984, but then things started to really slide and shift. We're going to get to that in a second, because I want to clear something up. You see... When people argue the greatest bands of all time, they often look to RIAA certifications. But that's not a fair or even standard to work from because the standards themselves have changed. And perhaps more importantly, so did the buying habits of the general public. Even into the mid-1960s, people predominantly bought 45 RPM singles, if anything. So if an artist managed to get a gold album before then, It was very significant in terms of public impact. As record players began to be easier to buy and the overall album format took hold, obviously there were more albums being sold. It doesn't mean music was getting better into the late 60s, it was, but it just meant that as a world culture, we were doing things differently. Add to that the introduction of additional formats like 8-tracks and cassettes and CDs, and there's no surprise that more copies of records were being sold. Simply put, the sales level associated with a record really depends on when the award was actually made. So you can stop being upset that modern pop stars are outselling the Beatles and things like that. It's just because of the times. So, back to the changes. As the late 80s and 90s completely turned things around, and in the view of many, It was really the beginning of the lack of meaning in RIAA certifications. The year was 1989, when the RIAA decided to reduce single certification down to 500,000 and 1 million units sold for gold and platinum, respectively, and this was basically because singles weren't selling as strongly as they once did. So yes, you can absolutely read that as, people weren't buying as much, so let's lower our standards. Then in 1992, and and, and pay attention here because this is absolutely absurd to me, the RIAA ruled that each individual disc in a multi-disc album would count as an individual record. That is to say, the Smashing Pumpkins' two-CD release, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, 
counted double for each time someone bought the album. To clarify, once 500,000 copies of a double album sold, it was awarded platinum certification for 1 million units. Sure, technically I guess that's right, but I think we can all agree that's stretching the truth a little bit. This is one of the many ways that albums in the 90s achieved upwards of 8 million sales, and it forced the RIAA to introduce Diamond Certification in 1999, which marked 10 million units in sales. As you might imagine, the rise of digital music muddied the waters even further, and there were a few big changes, starting with the first digital awards in 2004. These initial certifications followed the same numerical requirements, but in 2013, streaming numbers started being factored in and arbitrary equalities were put into place. The RIAA initially decided that every 100 streams of a song would count as a single download. You got that? You don't actually have to buy the track anymore. 100 streams, and they're basically saying, yeah, you bought the song. And they counted it the same on a service like Spotify as they did on slightly dissimilar places like YouTube. In early 2016, they upped it to 150 streams equaling one download. But again, remember, these are streams. They're not actually sales. One of the big reasons the RIAA changed things so drastically was because 2014 nearly became the first year on record without any platinum albums. You may remember seeing a story go viral on social media late that year, and for the record, I happen to have been the one who wrote that article, even though the Today Show decided to only credit my publication that I wrote for, but I am not bitter at all. But you probably saw the story pop up. You can check it out over at deathandtaxes.com. Anyway, had it not been for Taylor Swift's 1989, the year would have closed without any platinum albums, so the RIAA once again lowered their standards to keep the idea and the glamour of platinum records relevant. But remember... By this point, simply streaming a song counts as much as an album purchased to the RIAA. And with that fact alone, since 2013, RIAA certifications have ceased to truly represent actual sales numbers. Whew, okay, that was a lot of numbers in years. But I think it's important to understand that it's really not just liking an older artist more when people say gold and platinum records used to mean something. There's actually a fair amount of facts to back that up. Especially since 2013, when streaming numbers got added in, it's just not an accurate representation, and that's just a fact. So when an artist like Jay-Z manages to go platinum in just a few days, understand that things aren't exactly what they seem but he's not the only one who does fuzzy math, and I want to spend a few minutes discussing some other artists that found loopholes for record sales. Lord was the most recent before Jay-Z to do something similar, with her fantastic melodrama album that came out the other month. A day or so after the album was released, she began offering autographed lithograph prints of the album cover to fans for I think it was $20. Nothing wrong with that, and I mean, it's a very cool thing to do for an artist. But here's the catch. When you bought the art print, a signed print by Lord, you got a, quote, free digital copy of the album. And since you paid money for something, it actually counted as an album sale. So you consider all of the huge fans out there who are like, wow, I get a cool autographed cover of the album. It's not a bad way to increase your sales numbers without actually having people buy the record again. Just over a decade ago, 
the always inventive Prince came up with a clever idea to support his 2004 release, Musicology. He announced his arena tour, and as you'd imagine, every day it sold out because it's Prince. But what many ticket buyers didn't know is that with each purchased ticket, they were also buying a copy of the new record. That is to say, if you and your three buddies all went to see Prince, you were getting four copies of the new album, all of which counted towards his total sales numbers. Unsurprisingly, this led to the album being the biggest seller of the year, and as a result, SoundScan and Billboard and most of the other album sales counting organizations quickly ruled that going forward, ticket purchasers had to be given the choice to not buy an album. What I'm trying to get at here is that Jay-Z is not alone in attempting to find ways to increase album sales to the RIAA, but the question then remains, does RIAA certification actually matter? Or to go a bit deeper, did it ever matter? Let me rephrase that. Does it, or did it ever matter to the music buying public whether or not an artist's album got a gold or platinum certification? I would argue this is a very quick and firm, absolutely not. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you went into a record store or went to a streaming platform and said, I think I'm just going to listen to records that have multi-platinum sales status? I mean, you might want to listen to Grammy nominees or famous records that you've heard of, but looking for something based on sales? I doubt it, and to be honest, I'm not quite sure how you could do that easily. This is why I always say, just because something is popular doesn't mean it's good. It's the same thing for sales. There are many gold and platinum albums that aren't exactly pleasing to the ears. Sure, artists and producers love to have those cool-looking gold and platinum records on their walls, but for the average fan, it's just sort of a meaningless accomplishment. So yeah, congratulations, Jay-Z. You found a way to make your album go platinum in just a few days. Go you! Does that make the album any better or worse? Nope. Now, with all of this talk of big album sales, I think it's only fair that we take a moment for a little bit of an ear fuel quiz, shall we? All these numbers are according to the RIAA, so these are based only on sales in the United States. So question one, what is the biggest selling album in U.S. history? Think about this one. It sold over 30 million copies domestically, and it has an estimated 47 million copies worldwide. That's a lot of records. You want some hints? Okay. Um, it's by a single artist, not a band. This record counts for more than a third of the artist's total album sales, and this is an artist that had a number of other legendary records. Any guesses? Okay, one more hint. The album was released... November 30th, 1982. That's right. The top-selling album in the U.S. and in the world remains Michael Jackson's Thriller. And he actually has a multi-million album lead on the number two spot, and more than 10 million on the number three spot. That record sold a lot of copies. Question two of um, more than two. Yeah. So who has the most RIAA certifications? Remember, this combines both album certifications and singles. And I will tell you, 
that the title holder in this category has more than 150 more certifications than Michael Jackson. So obviously, this is an artist or a band that has a lot of musical output and massive sales. Let's be honest, okay? It's basically down to one of two choices, right? I mean, we're all thinking the same thing here. It's either Elvis or the Beatles, right? Okay, good. Just wanted to make sure we're on the same page. And the winner is, by nearly 50 certifications, Elvis Presley. Oddly enough, country legend George Strait is actually in fourth place, in front of bands like the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Elton John, and it's a reminder of just how much people love country music. Okay, okay, one more quiz question. Uh, Let's see. What is the biggest selling single in U.S. history? I like this one, and I knew this before I even did this podcast. This is one of my favorite I'm such a huge music geek questions. The biggest selling single in U.S. history. I know a lot of people would assume it's something very recent due to digital sales. But looking at the last few years, this is just some perspective. Blurred Lines sold about 6.5 million copies. Uptown Funk sold about 5.5 million. And even going way back, Elton John's Candle in the Wind, which is the second biggest selling single, sold just over 8 million copies. The single I'm talking about here, the biggest selling single in U.S. history, yeah, it sold in excess of 25 million copies. No joke, 25 million copies of one single. In fact, people estimate that worldwide, this single has sold more than 100 million copies. Any guesses yet? Let me just tell you, it is neither Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You nor Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On. So continue to have faith in humanity is neither of those two songs. But at the same time, I can almost guarantee you've heard it in the last year. And it's very likely that the last time you heard it, you had already tuned out all of the music around you. Here's another hint just to mess with your head. The song was released in 1942, but it still sells and gets regular airplay to this day at least for two or three months of the year. You know, maybe starting around early November and into the new year. Any guesses? Bing Crosby's version of White Christmas is, by almost three times the next closest, the biggest selling single of all time. For comparison, only Thriller sold more copies in the U.S. in terms of even full albums. Zeppelin IV does come close, but Bing Crosby's sales stand in a world all their own. So how many did you get right? Hit me up on Twitter at at the Daily Guru and at GetYourFuel and let me know. What I've been trying to convey today is that sales numbers are just that. They're numbers. They impact record labels and artists, and that's really about it. So the next time someone makes headlines because their new record went platinum, feel free to school some folks on how meaningless and watered down that distinction has become. Now, before we wrap the episode, I do, of course, have your weekly Ear Fuel listening assignment. For those of you new to the podcast, each week I assign an album to listen to in full, beginning to end, without any distractions or interruptions. It stems from the fact that these days, music has become relegated to a background task. 
you're at the gym, you're at work, you're driving, whatever. And this assignment is about taking some time each week to consciously listen to music for the sake of music alone. This week, because it's been about as hot as it gets during the summer, your listening assignment is one of my favorite chill-out records for the whole year, Parliament's 1976 funky masterpiece, Mothership Connection. It almost goes without saying that the entire Parliament Funkadelic recorded catalog represents a musical universe and movement all its own, but Mothership Connection? Music rarely gets this good, people. Whether you want to call this album just regular funk, space funk, soul funk, psychedelic funk, whatever, Mothership Connection is just one of those moments in music history that everyone needs to know. Seriously, I cannot convey to you just how much I adore this album. The grooves on this album know no equal, and you're going to find your head bobbing within just a few musical bars. And those of you who are unfamiliar with the album are going to find loads of musical hooks you've heard other artists rip off and sample countless times, not to mention the lingo and phrasing that George Clinton and company introduce across these 40 minutes. Why is this record so damn good? Well, look no further than the personnel involved. George Clinton is the leader of this band, but he also served as the producer and he wrote stuff. I mean, he pretty much had all of the creative control on this record. But the musicians behind him, I mean, you could make the case that this is the finest and most talented lineup ever on any record. Seriously. You've got Fred Wesley and Maceo Parker on horns here, having already perfected their talents, backing the baddest and fiercest version of James Brown's backing band. Music legend Bernie Worrell handles piano, synths, I mean, anything with keys to be played, Bernie's got you covered. The dazzling guitar work you're going to hear comes from the unbeatable and unfathomable duo of Eddie Hazel and Michael Hampton. And those funky bass lines? Yeah, go ahead and thank Bootsy Collins for them. I'm not kidding. The lineup here is truly unbelievable. This is beyond an all-star grouping of musicians, and it's a major reason why these songs are just sensational. But let's talk about those songs. There's the deep party groove of P-Funk Wants to Get Funked Up, the outright anthemic Give Up the Funk, which you also may know as Tear the Roof Off the Sucker. I mean, there's the title track, there's Handcuffs. There's not a bad second to be found anywhere, and it's also an album that truly gets better every time you play it. This record also knows no equal when it came to being sampled. You could probably argue that without this album, the majority of hip-hop music never happens. And musicians from every corner of the sonic spectrum have pulled various parts to make their own. Mothership Connection is an experience like no other in music history. And if you don't find yourself grooving along to this one, just go ahead and turn in your soul because it's not doing you any good or it's just busted. Really, from the music to the lyrics to just the positive sort of steamy vibe that this album exudes, Mothership Connection is one of those albums I feel should be given to every human as a reward for being born. It's that good and that essential. So if somehow you've never heard Mothership Connection, oh, is there a good time in store for you? So go change that right now. Thank me later. So that's all for this week. Make sure you hit me up on Twitter at at GetEarFuel and at TheDailyGuru and let me know what you're listening to these days. As always, the podcast is available in the iTunes and Google Play stores, along with at GetEarFuel.com. That is your weekly Ear Fuel. Share and enjoy.